Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161BC 102, Book Reviews of History, Church and State, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 212, February 5, 1990. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss some of our reading, past and present. One of the things we do enjoy uh, is reading, studying, and uh, books are important because they teach us to think in terms of perspectives other men have so that it stretches our minds, our intellectual muscles are greatly uh, strengthened by reading. One of the interesting books published of late is uh, a book uh, whose editor is Thomas J. Burke, Jr. The title, Man and State, Religion, Society, and the Constitution, published by the Hillsdale College Press, Hillsdale, Michigan. There are a number of uh, writers in this symposium, Burke, Llewellyn, Stanton Evans, Brevard Hand, the Judge, Thomas Molnar, Don Fetter, and Kunal Ladeen, as well as others. I thought there was an interesting fact cited by Don Fetter in his chapter, The Christian Vision, Man and the State. He writes, and I quote, Government is nothing but the legislation of ethics. Every legislative enactment involves a moral choice, the decision that an act is necessary and should be mandated or wrong and therefore must be prohibited. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the founders of our nation intended this republic to be guided by religious values. John Adams, perhaps the wisest of the founding fathers, put the matter forthrightly when he stated, Our Constitution was made for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. Daniel Webster, who was close to the founders, both chronologically and intellectually admonished, our ancestors established their system of government on morality and religious sentiment. Moral habits, they believed, cannot safely be trusted uh, on any other foundation than religious principle, nor government be secured, which is not supported by moral habit. And Fetter goes on to say that uh, this kind of thinking is shared by the majority of Americans and the majority of American Jews, but not the secular Jewish organizations, which he as a Jew criticizes because their thinking is premised on what he calls a knee-jerk modernism. So, uh, Every chapter, virtually, in this book has some very, very uh, telling places. Brown quotes Miller Dorfer, 
saying, the future will be Christian or it will not take place. The, another writer, Kunal Ladin, calls attention to the fact that despite the mythology that before the Spanish Republic of the 30s, the Spanish church was very wealthy, it was, as a matter of fact, very poor. And so on and on. There are a great many things in this book that are very, very important and well worth reading. So I strongly commend Man and the State, edited by Burke and published by Hillsdale College Press. Otto, do you want to discuss something now? Well, now that you've brought up uh, the early days of this republic, I would suggest reading The Anti-Federalist, yes, written, by, written by Jackson Maine of the University of North Carolina Press, 1974. The most prominent anti-federalist, of course, was Patrick Henry. Yes. Patrick Henry said when he read the Constitution as a result of the efforts in Philadelphia, I smell a rat. Mm -hmm. And he did. He smelled a drive for central power. And he uh, was rather eloquent about it. So did most of the people. That's why they added the Bill of Rights. They said it wasn't enough to take the government's goodwill for granted. They wanted to make a special case that the government of the United States, the new United States, would not be allowed to do certain things. Now, I've recently wrote something for the Calcedon Report on this issue, so I'm not going to anticipate myself. But the Anti-Federalists is a paperback book. It's not very long, but it would probably be more informative than a great many others that people might get hold of because we are now running into at the end of 200 odd years or whatever it is some of the criticisms that the anti-federalists anticipated we have not got a perfect government and that's not simply because it's operated by imperfect people but because the structure in Philadelphia was not really perfect. Mm -hmm. And the reasons that it was not were described by the anti-federalists, and it may well be time for us to reconsider their thoughts. A number of the anti-federalists wrote, uh, some extensively, some briefly, on their objections. I believe the first one, I years ago read a number of the anti-federalist writings, and I believe all of them have been reprinted in a mm. series. But Luther Martin mm. was the first one. He left the convention in mm. protest. Yes. Uh, the thing about Luther Martin that uh, made him notable and limited the value of what he had to say was that Luther Martin was a cantankerous and quirky person very difficult to get along with. But his very suspiciousness of human nature made him aware of things that the Founding Fathers uh, were not as fully aware of. 
namely that uh, looking down the road what were some of the people going to be like how would they use this uh, document and the anti-federalists largely uh, took their doctrine of total depravity very seriously yes and they felt that the founding fathers were assuming that every everyone was going to be like the first generation well it was also the fact that the men at philadelphia were young men yes with the exception of washington and franklin and yes. one or two others these were men who hadn't even been in the war of independence mm -hmm. and young men have more ideals yes uh, Perhaps I'm not putting it properly. I don't think that one loses one's ideals as one grows older, but our expectations wither. Mm -hmm. One of the most influential men of the day who trained more people who took high places in Washington and as governors and uh, so on was John Witherspoon. And John Witherspoon declined because he was a little too old and some of the other men who had earlier had a powerful influence were not up to uh, being a part of the convention and uh, that in itself was a problem you are right and I don't think anyone has called attention to the fact that uh, while they were good and great men they were young they were and they absolutely I think expected too much and along the same line, if I could make another suggestion, a book called 1676, The End of American Independence. Yes, very important work. By Stephen Webb, yes. published by Alfred A. Knopf, New York, 1984. Mm -hmm. Now, Charles II's brother, James the Duke of York, uh, one of the more eccentric individuals in history not stupid mm. very intelligent but an autocrat yes. and he determined that the provinces you might say the American provinces would stop being semi-autonomous and would become colonies and would be governed from London and they would do what London wanted them to do and there was a rebellion, if you remember, in Virginia, in which a number of men were killed, and it was suppressed with great savagery. And from 1676 onward, the drive for American independence began to grow. And unless Americans know that background, I would say their knowledge of American history is gravely incomplete. Yes, and the sad fact is that that very important book uh, scarcely had any notice, and it has virtually disappeared from uh, the minds and eyes of people who are interested in American history. But it tells us how after uh, the Cromwellian uh, Commonwealth was destroyed, then the freedom of the Americas was destroyed. Exactly. And we did not regain it with a glorious revolution. They kept us in su subjection until uh, the War of Independence uh, created a counter-movement 
to that earlier suppression. Well, the so-called glorious revolution, that is the greatest bunch of baloney that's ever been put out. Uh, they threw James II off the throne of England because he was a Catholic and he wanted to reintroduce Catholicism. And their glorious revolution was to bring over William and Mary, as you know. And the, they, t they explain this to this day. The, Amer the English historians call this the introduction of religious tolerance. It was so tolerant that a Catholic wasn't allowed. Lord Acton couldn't get into Oxford because he was a Catholic. It wasn't until the middle of the 19th century that Catholics were able to hold public office or the dissenters gained the their... Dis and the dissenters were equally barred from Oxbridge, as they call Oxford and Cambridge, and equally barred from office. Only the Anglican church members could rule, could even be counted as first-class citizens. Yes. That was the glorious revolution. I don't see how the words don't choke in their mouth. Well, power was seized from the crown by Parliament. Yes. But Parliament was not interested in the liberties of the people. No. I, or of the liberty of the Church of England. The liberty of anything except and, the power of Parliament. Yes. I mean, the whole purpose of politics is, is power. Mm -hmm. This is why it always amuses me when people say, well, if we get in better men, the only men we have are the men that are. There aren't any better men. Well, uh, to continue, one of the books I have been reading of late, it's a series of six volumes, published some years ago, uh, the work of uh, R.W. and A.J. Carlyle, uh, primarily the work of A.J. Carlyle, A History of Medieval Poli Political Theory in the West in six volumes. And I won't attempt to review these six volumes, but just a few um, items of interest uh, from these books. Uh, quoting uh, from volume three, this interesting statement, the authority of the king is the authority of law or right, not of wrong. The king, therefore, should use the authority of law or right as being the vicar and servant of God on earth, for that alone is the authority of God. The authority of wrong belongs to the devil and not to God, and the king is the servant of him whose work he does. Now, this was the perspective of uh, a great many people like uh, Bracton, who wrote on uh, English law. And others made statements such as, there is no king where will rules and not law. What's the name of the series? Uh, it's Medieval Political Theory in the West. Mm. And the thing we've got to remember, while there was a bitter battle underway throughout a good deal of the Middle Ages, between church and state. Both church and state saw themselves as Christian. There were monarchs from time to time who were avowed pagans. William uh, Rufus, 
who succeeded William the Conqueror was obviously anti-Christian to the core. And Frederick uh, II, the Hohenstaufen Emperor, much later, was probably a secret Muslim, uh, but not openly so. So, mainly it was a battle between church and state as to which best represented God and was going to predominate over the other and all of society. There were more than a few churchmen who stood up against ungodly rulers and godly rulers who corrected ungodly uh, hopes. For example, among the churchmen, uh, quoting again, this is from uh, volume one, Sedulius Scotus, uh, warning evil rulers of the ruin which impends over them of the judgment of God which awaits them both in this world and the next exclaims what are impious kings but the great robbers of the earth fierce as lions ravening like wolves but they are great today and perish tomorrow and of them God has said they reign but not by me they arose as princes, but I knew it not. The evil ruler or tyrant is no king. He is only, as Cicero indeed had called him, a wild beast, the most terrible and loathsome known to the world. Uh, that kind of plain speaking was very common in the Middle Ages. And uh, the uh, rebuke that... Uh, churchmen administered to rulers uh, was uh, remarkable. They held that without justice a ruler is a tyrant and no king. So they did give evil rulers a bad time even as uh, some godly rulers gave uh, the ungodly churchmen a bad time and properly so well that brings up the modern world in which no greater power than the state is held officially to exist mm -hmm. and I think the secularization of the European mind in the 19th century by Owen Chadwick yes very important work is a book published by Cambridge University Press 1975 I'm sure it's still available is a very good book for Americans to read because the English loss of face anticipated the American by probably a generation or more uh, the diaries of the 1840s 1830s, 40s and 50s of English people show all sorts of personal suffering and agony over their loss of faith. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, the ground was so well prepared that when Darwin appeared, his edition sold out in one day, mm -hmm. the first edition. Yeah. They were so delighted to have an alternative view. But that didn't really hit the United States in any large sense, I don't think, until probably the 80s and the 90s. Mm -hmm. 
by the turn of the century the faith was hollow in this country and without knowing what happened to the English I don't think the average American Christian can understand what happened here yes and how much more uh, godless we were around 1900 than we are today the difference was that people still had the moral training that the church provided and were not lawless as they are now you're talking about manners you're talking yes. about my grandparents yes. on both sides mm -hmm. I remember coming away from the church with my grandfather McGivney uh, I thought the priest on that occasion had really gone around the bend and I was pretty young very young and I said to my grandfather what did you think of the sermon he said what I said the sermon he said I never listen <laughs> yes that was once commonplace everybody went to church and nobody paid anything any attention in fact uh, I can recall early in my preaching uh, one uh, elder complaining that uh, I spoke too well. It was not possible to sleep when I was speaking. <laughs> well, Chadwick brings up, for instance, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Ramsay MacDonald, the Labour Prime Minister, if you recall. I believe it was either he or an earlier one. It might have been Asquith. It might have been that far back. Who went, who played golf on Sunday. And it created a scandal. Mm -hmm. Now, Asquith was guilty of much worse but the thing was that this was a public thing yeah. for the prime minister to play golf on Sunday uh, the all the manners were kept mm -hmm. the perfume you might say of religion was maintained yes. and Chadwick does a marvelous job of explaining how the middle-class churches turned away the working class the working class had been disrupted from their village life and had no place to go. They began to communicate. Only the newspapers and the soccer games held them together. And they, they felt that they couldn't even go into those churches because they weren't dressed well enough. We have that. That came in here to a marked extent. Yes. Well, uh, turning to the second volume of the Carlyle work here's another interesting statement from Hugolinus the fear of God is the foundation of law which is in its turn the foundation of human society and the state for the state is a multitude of men joined together to live by law this is a summary statement of Hugolinus by Carlyle some of the other churchmen of the day said the fear of God is the foundation of law. Another said God is himself equity. But I like especially a statement by one of the great uh, churchmen and legal experts of the medieval era, one of the most influential. And he declared, the Lord said, I am the truth, not I am custom or constitution. A marvelous statement. And I think that sums up a very important strand of medieval thought, the belief that God himself is equity and law. 
and that no law is valid if it is contrary to the law of God. This is why the Middle Ages was able again and again to correct itself when it went astray and to come back. As long as they held to that position, uh, they had a correcting power in their culture. Well, the Middle Ages was remarkable. Durant called it the, they called them the Ages of Faith. Mm-hmm. The Ages of Faith were remarkable by the, by the presence of God in the mind of all the people, including the worst elements. Mm-hmm. The worst elements knew they were breaking the law. Yes. But they didn't divorce themselves from God. I think perhaps the most moving and eloquent statement of that is a poem by Francois Villon. I was thinking of him. Yes. Here he was, a failed student, uh, living off of a prostitute, and yet in one of his moving poems, which is something of a prayer, he faces up to what he is. He has no pretensions of being anything more than he is, and he prays for mercy and pardon. Well, who knows the presence of God better than a real sinner? Yes, and that beyond knew himself to be in the final analysis. And that's what's gone in our society. Our courts have made it clear that there is no law above themselves. And... Uh, Holmes, uh, in his uh, book on uh, the common law, made very clear that law is simply experience. Exactly. Experience codified. So what can be uh, above experience? Nothing. Well, the effort, there was a book about the effort to create a religion called Lenin Lives by Nina Tomarkin. Harvard University Press, 1983. I have that, but I haven't read it. Well... I just uh, picked it up recently. I think you will find it one of the most fascinating of books because Lunacharsky, Lunacharsky, the Commissar of Art and Culture, was... real intellectual. He was the one who saved the ballet because he had a mistress who was a ballerina. Lunacharsky observed that no society could endure without a faith. And about the time of, of Lenin's death, before Lenin's death, he began to prepare the transmutation of communism into a religious faith because the Russians were a religious people, and in fact all people are religious. So a determined effort, first of all the mummy, uh, which I think is probably a wax figure in the mausoleum. He had a big contest to see whose plans would be chosen for the mausoleum. And then he had Lenin's face engraved and, and, and baked into the enamel of cups and dishes and placemats and pictures and statues and they had a Lenin corner in every home like the household gods of the pagans. They had these parades through the street with the enormous and large portraits of Lenin and all the other founders, Marx and whatnot. And it was a 
total effort by a totalitarian society in charge of every platform, every paper, every radio, every film, everything, to implant the idea of Lenin as God. Yes. And Lenin was supposed to have go to the factory. He, he rose from his grave and he went around to see how the unions were doing and all this kind of nonsense. And all the speakers, where is it now? Two generations. Mm -hmm. Where is it now? The same kind of divinization uh, took place with regard to Stalin in his own lifetime. And it didn't last more than a few days after his death. That's right. They waited first to be sure he was dead. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then they turned to something else. <laughs> One of the things that marked the later Middle Ages was that as uh, theology developed, it developed in two directions. There was a papal theology and an imperial theology. Each uh, camp striving to declare itself the true vicar of God on earth. And one of the most ominous developments was, of course, the uh, development of uh, imperial theology. <laughs> now, historically and theologically, we have to say that the church is the uh, body of Christ. That is scriptural. But it is not his divine nature, but his human nature. We are his renewed humanity, and so the church represents uh, the humanity of Christ at work in this world with his divine power behind the church and behind us and working in and through us through the Holy Spirit. But as against this, the imperial theology took a very, very ominous uh, turn. Quoting from the fourth volume of Carlyle's uh, study of medieval uh, doctrine on the subject, and I quote, uh, this uh, I believe is uh, from the Anonymous of York, the king he maintains and the priest are both anointed by God, but the priest represents the human nature of Christ in which he is inferior to the Father while the king represents Christ's divine nature in which his, he is equal to the Father. The priest represents Christ as suffering death and offering himself as a sacrifice to God the Father. The king represents Christ as about to be crowned with glory and honor and to reign forever in his heavenly throne over all authorities and powers. The angel of the Annunciation said to Mary, The Lord will give him the seed of his father David, not of his father Aaron, for God gave David authority even over priests. It is therefore just that the king should have power and authority even over the priest. Unquote. Now, this concept is very important in Western thought and is rarely touched on because out of it comes the divine right of kings. Sure, that was Frederick II. Yes. Uh, the notion that the 
church, because it represents the humanity of Christ, is vulnerable to criticism, which is true, but that the king representing the divine nature of Christ is above criticism. Only God, only Christ can criticize him, no man. And so out of that medieval doctrine of imperial theology developed the divine right of kings, uh, uh, which you have written in uh, your book on James, and which has had so long and evil a history. Now what people do not realize is that the doctrine of the divine right of kings did not end when James II was driven from the throne. Well, of course not. It was transferred to Parliament. And this is why Sir Hartley Shawcross, after World War II, the Attorney General of Britain, made it clear that Parliament could do anything it chose, including decreeing, he said, that all blue-eyed babies be destroyed at birth, and it could not be criticized, nor could it be declared wrong. That's true. And that doctrine of the divine right of the state is common to all modern politics. Is believed. Uh, and, of course, especially prominent in uh, Marxism. But it is also in the background of American political theory. Well, just try suggesting that we reorganize the government. Mm -hmm. People's eyes fall out. Yes. They stagger around as though you've hit them. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a sacred structure. Yes. Uh, there has been mountains of propaganda on the sacredness of this structure. And we've seen this, for example, in the comparative punishment of uh, Baker, 45 years, Jim Wright has a pension of, uh, what is it, 89,000? Well, more than that. Much more. Yes. And... Uh, He's worth more dead than alive. Uh, Tip O'Neill has never been sent to jail. Uh, what is being done to Barney Frank? Nothing so far. And uh, Cranston and the other senators are not likely to suffer. So offenses of the state are uh, on a different tolerated. level. On a different level. No. I was interested in the news tonight. I forget what area of uh, life today the state legislature was proposing to control. And uh, one man spoke and emptied the chambers of the state legislature when he said, if you are concerned with moral reform, why don't you start with yourself? There is no agency in the state of California more in moral trouble than you are. And you are proposing to control us there was no comment, no response. Empty chairs as he spoke. That's very interesting. Did you ever read The Great War and Modern Memory by Paul Fussell? No. Well, 
It was printed by Oxford University Press in 1975. Since then, Fussell has produced more books, but not at the same level. This is one of those remarkable works in which everything worked. Mm -hmm. uh, most writers have this. They have one book in which everything works. Mm -hmm. And this is Fussell's. Uh, I think it was his first. He's talking about World War I. And he began by examining the poetry of Hardy and others before the war. And of course you recall that what happened. How, how do you spell his name? Uh, Fussell. F-U-S-S-E-L-L. That's familiar, starting with Hardy. Uh, uh, well, when was Hardy, it written? 1975. I, I must you, have you, uh, read you it. Mu you must have the book. Well, uh, he talks, and he did, he exhumed a, a number of Hardy's poems yes. in which the sense of the grave was almost overt, mm -hmm. funereal in tone. And then, of course, you had that whole generation that came into maturity around 1914, which felt that all European culture was decayed, was yes. static, it was old, it was mustache peats, as the mm -hmm. Mafia said. It was the result of, to an extent, the unremitting rain of criticism that burst upon Europe yes. when the ghetto's walls were fallen and in which all European culture exposed to brand new eyes <coughs> brand new eyes suddenly began to seem baroque, useless, ancient, and so forth. So then the war and he does a magnificent job in depicting the bloodiness of the war in the West, particularly the trench warfare, the hopelessness of it, the expense in terms of bodies and people. And the disillusion in the middle of the war that all the classic words ranging all the way back to the Romans, everything that had ever uh, been held to make men appear heroic, and in fact men are heroic in war. Mm -hmm. They're sacrificing their lives, they're risking their lives, they're saving their comrades, they're obeying their commanders. And yet all of this in the middle of the experience when the general officers and the staff officers were in chateaus and dining off elegant tables with clean linen and so forth and the men in the trenches broke the whole mystique of the European culture. Do you realize that since then we have hardly known what to fight for. Uh, one of the worst experiences of my life in World War II, coming back to the United States from the Pacific, the war was over, and we, we, were, on a, uh, we were on a Liberty ship, which had served as a troop carrier or something, and we brought back uh, fellows on this emergency leave, they called it, because somebody was dying at home, and all that. And of course, putting them on a liberty ship was ridiculous because it took months to get across the Pacific. I talked to all the soldiers, and none of them knew why we were fighting. Mm -hmm. They all felt that they were being persecuted, 
someone somewhere had done them dirty because they had had to go to war while other men they knew stayed at home and made money. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. It was awful. World War One, they went in with a different period. But Paul Fussell, in that book, portrays the experience and the disillusion in an unforgettable way. Well, somebody died the other day who expressed that mood of total cynicism, Samuel Beckett. Ah, uh, yes, he was the he was the poet of yes. cynicism. Uh, his waiting for Godot, for example, well, in the thirties, was regarded as uh, absolute gospel. Did you see the cartoon in the Spectator with a gravestone of uh, of Beckett, in which Godot pinned a note to it saying, "Sorry, you weren't home." Yes, yes. Well, apparently, the most uh, well Godot had a. I mean, uh, Beckett had a good life. Born in Dublin, a he had good everything. family, always uh, reasonably well off, and yet on one occasion, living in Paris and London, on one occasion, on a beautiful day when the sun was shining and everything was green and lovely, he was walking, I believe, in a London park, and a friend who saw him said, Samuel, on a day like this, even you must find life worth living. And uh, Beckett immediately said, I wouldn't go so far. It's very interesting. I once wrote a piece which was turned down, was rejected. It was titled, The Sour Smell of Success. (laughs) All the successful Americans that I've both known and read about who find life unpleasant sitting there, as my grandmother would say, with a rasp and a tub full of butter. (laughs) Well, profundity, according to the critics, since World War I, is being totally cynical about everything, being happy about nothing, and trying to make everyone as miserable as yourself. Then you are a great writer. That's really a sin, you know, because God intends us to be happy. Yes. Yes. It's a beautiful world. Along those lines, one of the books I read recently by Pierre Caban, C-A-B-A-N-N-E, is Dialogues with Mar- Marcel Duchamp. Ah, uh, that must be fun, because he wound up showing off toilet bowls, as I remember. <laughs> yes, oh yes. Uh, and is regarded as the... Uh, great man in modern art who set the temper of art since World War One or before. And some of the profundities from Duchamp, uh, this quote, there is no solution because there is no problem. <laughs> he uh, sought to be the great saboteur of art. And his work uh, is described as formal decomposition. He is described uh, as a missionary of insolence. He says, a painting that doesn't shock isn't worth painting. And... uh, and he, he, yet, oddly enough, these are people that are easy to shock. 
All you have to do is to tell them what you think of their work. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Kaban asks him, you protected yourself particularly against the family. Duchamp answered, that's it. The family that forces you to abandon your real ideals, to swap them for things it believes in, society and all that paraphernalia. He refused to marry until he was an older man and then only a woman who was incapable of bearing a child any longer because only then could you negate the world. That's really a death wish. Yes. That's death, walking death. I have a great deal more admiration for Thomas Sowell. Yes. Thomas Sowell, and I would, I would recommend every book he's ever written, published by Basic Books, that's his publisher. And the thing that really struck me most about Sowell, although I, I've liked, as I said, all his books, was his book on black education, mm -hmm. which that is was good. Which autobiographical. He, he shouldn't have made out. He quit school and was a messenger because his family wanted him to bring home some money and they were poor and they were living in Harlem. Then he realized that he was trapped. He had trapped himself. So he went in the army. When he came out of the army, he had the GI Bill and he also got a job in the government part-time under a woman in Washington, D.C. who hated black people. And he kept quiet, reported for work every day in the office, and went to that very famous black university. Howard, is that the yes. name of it? And he said it was a farce. Mm -hmm. He said they were just passing them through. And he transferred, and I guess this was the beginning of the affirmative action program, he transferred to Harvard. And Harvard, he said, almost broke his heart because he realized for the first time how far behind he was. Mm -hmm. And he had to work 18 hours a day to keep up and to get through, and he did. Mm -hmm. Then he transferred to the University of Chicago where he ran into Milton Friedman in the Chicago School of Economists, and he found a home. And of course, as you know, he's since gone on to make a remarkable career. Yes. And he's not colored, he's black. Mm -hmm. I remember listening to him on a television program in which the situation of South Africa was discussed and there was a white um, American liberal woman who was taking the side of the black people in South Africa while Sowell was trying to tell her <coughs> that he didn't think they were ready for independence. Mm -hmm. And she accused him of being a racist bigot. Mm -hmm. And... He looked at her, and I really thought he would strike her, but he restrained himself. Well, he says in that book that he was discriminated against at uh, Howard by a white woman professor who was very light-skinned because he was dark, and she was sure that because he was dark, he couldn't be very bright. Uh, yes, and I think that's true in the yes. in the black community. Yes, there was a case recently of discrimination of discrimination charged. on that ground charged. 
to go back to Marcel Duchamp. The one question he resented, he was ready to talk about anything, was any reference to God. And in the climactic instance of that, Cabana asks, do you believe in God? Duchamp, no, not at all. Don't ask that. For me, the question doesn't exist. God is a human invention. Why talk about such a utopia? When men invent something, there's always someone for it and someone against it. It's mad foolishness to have made up the idea of God. I don't mean that I'm neither atheist nor believer. I don't even want to talk about it. I don't talk to you about the life of bees on Sunday, do I? It's the same thing. Irrelevant. Irrelevant talk. Later on he says, Despite yourself, when you're an atheist, you're impressed by the fact that you're going to completely disappear. I don't want another life or metempsychosis. It's very troublesome. It would be much better to believe in all those things. You'd die joyfully. Well, now, he was a big man in his small world, the world of modern art, which, mm -hmm. grew, which, which is still a small world, really. Yes. And we compare that with Nadez de Mandelstam's two books, Hope Against Hope, printed 1970 by Athenaeum, and Hope Abandoned, 1974, by the same house. The wife of Ossip Mandelstam. They started out, both he and, both she and her husband, ardent Marxist revolutionaries, mm -hmm. both gifted, both very literate, both having mastery of a number of languages, being raised in wealthy families, international families, you might mm -hmm. say. They were published, he was published in Germany, and she was a polymath of sorts. And they were favored by the revolution until Stalin began to eat them all up. And then they lost everything. Mm -hmm. uh, they lost their right to have an apartment in Moscow. He lost his livelihood, well, no, no chance of getting a job. Pravda printed a little item saying, Ossip Mandelstam, the poet, is last seen drunk in a bar. And they lived off the bounty of their friends. They lived as a couple of beggars. They'd go into town and they'd sleep a few nights here and a few nights there, free meals and whatnot. There's a photograph of him, very spiritual-looking young man, looking like a poet, and then the same man ten years later looking like the, the first photo photograph's father. In the end, he vanished in Siberia. The actual details of his death are unknown. Mm -hmm. He disappeared there, died up there, and nobody dies pleasantly in Siberia. He forced her to memorize all his poetry. And later on, after he died, she spent years in the provinces as a schoolteacher. Then finally was allowed back in Moscow very late in her life, in the 60s, I believe. And then young people began to come to her. Now, she had actually believed in the revolution to this extent. She thought the revolution could destroy the old civilization. She was positive of it because around her were nothing but the evidences of unlimited authority. And then young people came to her who came up with the same questions and the same intelligence as the people of her youth. 
And it was the first time that she realized that the human race is renewable. Yes. It cannot be cut down. Mm-hmm. Yes. And those are two... The first book made her internationally famous, Hope Against Hope. The publisher put that title on. The second book, Hope Abandoned, was her own title because her name, Nadezda, means hope in Russian. But in the end, she said, I know I am going to see Asif in the next world. Mm -hmm. And for that turning toward the Christian faith, she suddenly dropped from the reviews. And both her books have subsequently been buried, and they're both marvels of eloquence. Mm -hmm. Tremendous. We don't have much time, and I'd like briefly to touch on a couple of books. Uh, One by Peter Cornwell, Church and Nation, deals with royal theology today in England, Mm. the relics of it in the church and state uh, legal situation. And while he has a very liberal perspective, basically he is critical of the royal theology. But uh, he quotes from F.D. Maurice, uh, who spoke of the folly of opposing the spirit of the age with the spirit of a former age. Hmm. And I think that is an important thing for conservatives to pay attention to, mm-hmm. because they have the folly of today with the folly of yesterday when they need to confront yesterday and today with well, God and you, his word. Yesterday is, <clears throat> is really only interesting if you can extract something from it for use today. Yes. It's not, a, it's not an escape. It's not a program. It's not an alternative. You can't go back in that sense. The only thing you can do is to avoid previous error. Then another book, uh, very briefly, by David Freeman Hawke, a a good historian. Hawke with an E at the end of it. Everyday Life in Early America, published by Harper and Rowe. And he calls attention to the fact that it is very difficult for us to grasp that Uh, both in the colonial period and the early American period. National affairs were minor things. Most people knew nothing about them, were not interested, because the national government, the federal government, as they would have said, was a sometime thing, meeting a couple of weeks a year and no more. And it was the local scene that mattered, he said. Well, in the minds of everyone. Well, now <clears throat> you turn on the radio and TV and all you get is bulletins about what the government is doing. Yes. So it's a totally different situation and the federal government then was a minor thing and local affairs took up the minds of everyone. Then a minor point, and our time is almost up, he said in the earliest days, one of the th- curiosities... I noticed this particularly because it goes the grain against the grain with me. Uh, when they went fishing and uh, the waters were full of fish, the one thing they would not touch was salmon. They didn't regard salmon as fit to eat. So <laughs> did you ever see a, a menu of some of the things they did think were fit to eat? Yes, <laughs> pretty terrible. Yes. 
they didn't like vegetables either. For a long time, the Indians taught them that. Well, our time is about up, and we thank you all for listening, and God bless you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christ Rules dot com.